travellers, and welcome to another edition of our podcast, You Should Have Been There. Uh, it's me, Mick Webb, with... Uh, Simon Calder, I think. Um, or, possibly, depending on um, who you think I am, I might be Nicholas Crane, or, indeed, I might be uh, Louis Theroux. Um, two of the uh, uh, celebrities I've been mistaken for, um, ah, among but, others. But that's quite appropriate, because um, we are actually uh, today going to be talking about... Um, Fakes and faking it. Yes, uh, we genuinely are from our, our studio here in um, Tahiti, uh, or may, maybe uh, somewhere in London. <laughs> well, OK, let me start by asking you, um, as a, uh, a travel journalist, a travel writer, a great traveller, how much fakery or um, pretense invention does actually go on in the world of travel writing and travel reporting? Well, there is, as uh, Bruce Chapwin demonstrated, uh, I think most notably, there is a continuum between what actually happened and what might have happened. And uh, he seems um, to have switched fairly effortlessly between the two. Sadly, um, because he is no longer with us, we can't, we can't actually chat with Chatwin and find out exactly what he did. But, of course, he wrote um, uh, some, some great uh, travelogues as well as some um, good definite fiction. So I think there is, there is a spectrum. But clearly, I hope I reside at the um, non-fiction end of that since um, my daily work is um, writing stories which are true. We were talking ourselves, we were just chatting um, earlier before we started the recording about the things that you can actually go and see in the world, which we would generally consider to be <coughs> uh, possibly outrageous fakes. And people actually like to go and see them. I possibly like to go and see them myself. And you were telling me about uh, some the, in the States. The, the, the Parthenon. Um, if you, I, I always um, I love the Parthenon, of course, the magnificent temple on top of the uh, Acropolis in uh, Athens. However, it is in fairly poor shape after having suffered innumerable um, problems um, over the past couple of centuries. So far better, obviously, to um, go to Nashville, Tennessee, when there is a full-size concrete replica of the Parthenon as it is supposed to be. And naturally, of course, there's many, many uh, uh, little Eiffel Towers around the world of probably the most notable is in that centre of fakery, Las Vegas. I haven't seen that one, but I have seen a fake cave in France, Lascaux these days, which was discovered probably in the 1940s, I think, and which, of course, is an absolutely wonderful repository of early man's drawings and paintings, uh, magic symbols and stuff, uh, is now actually only visitable as a fake next door to it because, of course, of the damage that uh, we humans do when we go underground and breathe and inconvenience, stuff like that. Except where does that um, end? Because, of course, uh, I, I think I first wrote my first story about virtual travel in about 2002, and this was the idea that you would put headphones on, you would listen, and you would be transported somewhere. In the almost 20 years since then, um, we don't seem to have been taken in by it, but uh, certainly building a replica of a, uh, a an historic site um, is, uh, well, clearly um, quite a popular thing to do. I believe there are quite a lot of Statues of Liberty yes. uh, dotted around the place. Uh, including one in France, of course, on a um, uh, where I think the original Statue of Liberty came from, but they've 
put one on an island in the Seine in the eastern part of the city. You can see it from one of the uh, metro lines as it surfaces to uh, to cross the river. One of the things I would like to do if uh, and when uh, the current coronavirus plague uh, allows us to travel to China again is to go and see some of the splendid replicas they have there, which I gather includes a version of, well, it's a Thameside English village, which actually is a residential uh, suburb of Shanghai, where if, if you look at the pictures of it, it looks as though it might have been based on Henley-on-Thames with um, pubs and telephone boxes, but with uh, real shops um, and uh, burger bars and milkshake th- bars, which have been borrowed from the United States, which is a whole kind of global yeah. sort of well, community. And, and um, the, there's a community very close to um, Orlando in the U.S., um, where they have almost a Disney-esque recreation of what um, people like to think the 1960s were like. And yet it is this, this kind of proper, proper community with proper hotels and, and everything else. However, it is, it is kind of harking back to an age which possibly didn't quite exist in, in that way. But um, the Chinese are very, very good at faking it, of course, um, even though they have uh, magnificence in the shape of, for example, the terracotta warriors. But even then, there are questions about, well, how many of these, this magnificent <laughs> army, um, was uh, were, were actually originals? And I think you're not allowed to get close enough to be able to, to begin that investigation. That is, of course, another example of a continuum. I, one of the things I like to do when I'm travelling is uh, go to Mexico and Central America to look at Mayan um, ruins, uh, partly because other than the very big ones of Chichen Itza and um, Uxmal, very few people actually go to these, so you can feel quite um, like a, a, a lone and intrepid explorer, you know, as you sort of hack away the jungle and uh, listen to the uh, the cicadas and, and, and get bitten by clouds of mosquitoes. But indeed, I mean, most of these have been very, very painstakingly um, possibly lovingly and possibly accurately restored from piles of stone and and rebuilt entirely in the original apparently um, form. And then the uh, great uh, centrepiece of the Minoan civilization, Knossos, of course, um, was reinvented, I, th- I would say, um, as a kind of Victorian archaeological project, which um, now is very heavily restored. But uh, and, and some present day 21st century um, uh, archaeologists mourn the fact that uh, it was put back together. So, uh, <laughs> well, um, clumsily, I guess they would say. But on the other hand, you understand how these people lived. So um, uh, on the scale of, um, of, of cultural vandalism, I don't think I would uh, rate <laughs> that too highly. Well, maybe if indeed the world is uh, made up of all these um, artefacts that are... Um, loosely based on um, authenticity or on some sort of continuum somewhere between completely inauthentic and um, you know not too bad a replica um, or re uh, creation of the original uh, then it's not surprising that lots of travel writers um, and I, let's talk about narrative travel where I talked to a travel writer called Nigel Barley who who wrote I think an incredibly funny 
book called The Innocent Anthropologist, which was based on his fieldwork as an anthropologist in the Cameroons about 40 years ago. Uh, and I did interview him once and I said, Nigel, this is, I really enjoyed your book. I just can't believe that all of this stuff happened, you know. And uh, he said his rule of thumb was that the events were all correct. But he said it was quite hard to find all of the the sort of secondary characters. It was hard to make them um, earn their keep in the, in the book because quite often they didn't say anything very funny or didn't do anything absolutely mind-boggling. So he combined those in, often in, in sort of one character. And he was quite happy to tell you this. He was perfectly honest about it. I have it. I have it on tape somewhere. <laughs> well, and, and that's that's a, a good thing because, of course, we're living um, now in an era where everything can be filmed, and therefore one hopes verified. And I wonder if we could talk about the way that um, uh, television, to or, or videos, whatever, um, does actually replicate what happens. Um, uh, I, you, you've worked in television quite considerably. Um, of course, it is artifice, but um, is it is it accurate artifice? Isn't that an interesting <laughs> question? Well. Um, I, I, I think radio is, and I would say this because I've worked in it for much longer than in television, and also you and I have made some splendid uh, radio uh, documentaries about other places, but television television travel, I would say, is very dependent on the idea of jeopardy, which means that um, the idea is unless something happens... <laughs> Something dramatic or something frightening. And I'm talking about adventure travel yes, here. Or something funny in the case of um, Top Gear or the, the, yeah, the, the Grand yeah. Tour. Yeah. Then that needs to be played up at the cost of everything else. And obviously one of the things that happens is, and I, I do remember watching what I thought was you know, quite a good uh, travel series on ITV, I think it was, um, about an adventurer um, walking through through Central America and ending up in the very dangerous jungle region with no roads between Panama and Colombia called the Darien Gap. Uh, a, a gap that we are familiar with having skirted round the edge of it um, uh, some, some years ago. Yeah, that's right. Um, well, this, this traveller um, went through some quite dangerous parts of, of uh, Honduras, for example. Um, but I felt that and I did feel that what was played up was how damn dangerous this was. Here I am on my own, etc., etc. Where actually, quite clearly, there was a backup truck. Uh, and sometimes the great um, adventurer was seen with a very light day pack on his back when you thought, well, hang on a second, if he's doing a seven-week journey <laughs> or whatever, uh, where's, um, oh, where are all his clothes and boots and things like that? And then when he did get to the Darien Gap, which was built, quite rightly, as a very dangerous part of, of the uh, the world, I didn't really feel he crossed it at all. He went through the closest corner of it and uh, I felt that maybe... Uh, I don't think anybody who hadn't been there or tried to do it themselves would have noticed this. But I thought, mm, I think this has been um, seriously uh, oversold, shall we say. Well, of course, um, our uh, journey ourselves through the Dariem Gap, to be totally truthful, involved flying from Medellin in a, a time when um, that wasn't always a great idea to a place called Capargana, um, which the captain of the plane said... Uh, 
It's the third most dangerous airport in Colombia. Um, there is quite a quite a Premier League there, uh, and then spending a long, long, long time hiking across to Puerto Obaldia in uh, Panama, um, which was difficult and challenging, but um, it wasn't. It was not. I must stress us exactly crossing the Darien Gap. It was us um, traversing the international frontier through some quite challenging jungle. Um, but we managed to avoid the uh, the, the uh, narco terrorists and um, yeah, it, 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 yes, it, it was quite dangerous. Did we actually? We did call it bridging the gap, which I suppose was technically true because yes. we did get from one side of it to the other, and we did have exciting encounters. Um, uh, we stayed the night in a in a, an abandoned hut by a surprising watercourse which we thought wasn't there because the map was not very accurate in fact if ever there was a piece of um, uh, embellished fakery it was the uh, Panamanian military map we were using but uh, <laughs> there was actually a surprising little river which we needed because we'd run out of water uh, and um, in the hut where we stayed beside this I remember two things one was the incredible noise of frogs which kept me awake all night um, and then the fact that we found up in the uh, thatch of this hut a quiver of arrows yes which uh, you very rarely find a quiver these days i find it's true actually and uh, were they poisoned weren't they and uh, would the owner be coming back to find them and what would i imagine it would be he um, have thought of us um, crashed in his hut without well, any permission um, with, with, uh, with um, I think a couple of quite comfortable hammocks okay well we'll let ourselves off the hook here anyway yes. as being only sort of quite moderately um, uh, inventive yes of, of course this this all kind of I, I think it was in the um, around about 2006 was it when there was a big fuss about uh, editing and veracity uh, at the BBC, which all had to do with um, uh, somebody showing a clip of the Queen apparently storming out of something when in fact she was walking perfectly nicely into something, and whereupon the entire BBC was obliged from that moment onwards to be utterly, utterly truthful, as I'm sure it has been um, ever since. Ever since. And, and um, I've heard stories, I've been um, uh, lucky enough to do some, some television travel, and you hear stories from before then of one programmer, I can't remember fortunately which one it was, wanting to simulate um, a trip on Eurostar um, but unfortunately they didn't have time or money to get to Paris, so they would simply sat on a train <laughs> with a, a, a underpaid work experience person uh, slightly rattling the curtains in order to make it look as though they were they, they were going along and there was some, some motion, um, and that that is the sort of thing that uh, poor viewers are contending with. Well, let, let me put this to you, and you can you can judge whether or not you think it is um, faking it, or I as I would say, merely telling uh, some some useful travel information. That the Independent we have a series called Forty Eight Hours In, which has been going since before the dawn of time, um, and we make some films. And they have a structure to them, and the whole idea is you tell people how to enjoy themselves. So um, what with budgets being cut as they are, um, one film involved intercutting um, present-day 
filming with what was filmed getting on for three years earlier. So it involved me being there in in obviously the same clothes, which I managed to keep. Um, but uh, maybe a couple of years um, uh, longer in the tooth. Um, and um, in order to see if it worked, I'm afraid I made my poor daughter watch the whole thing and tell me if there was anything odd about it and she picked up a couple of things like uh, repetitions in the script but she didn't pick up the fact that her father was simultaneously uh, uh, here he is now and here he he was three years ago Um, and this was uh, quite often you would go from one one shot to another and um, I would say that's entirely reasonable because you're you know that, that, that as long as you've checked that that bit of street looks the same now as it did three years ago that's okay but tell me what your your thought on that well my first thought is that um you obviously uh, influenced martin scorsese here before because these his very um uh, splendid lengthy and prize-winning uh, uh, film the irishman uh, has as its main selling point the fact that the major characters sal pacino and robert de niro um are now Let's say, well, you said long in the tooth. I would say, well, whatever, even longer in the tooth uh, are in the present. But they then had to go back in time about 40 years, I think, or so. Uh, and then, of course, quite a lot of um, uh, trickery and makeup was required to, to make this work. Um, I, I watched it. I thought it was a very good film. And, uh, I, but I watched it knowing that this was the case and was trying to spot it and um, but uh, I oh. well I'll have to look at your one in in, in, a, in a new light <laughs> I, I I would think that was probably fair enough I mean um, as long as the actual information that you put across was the modern well which takes us neatly on I would say to the uh, uh, minor scandal of Thomas Constam um, would you like to uh, explain well yes uh, Thomas Constam uh, in 2008 it was was an American travel writer who worked for a number of travel companies including Lonely Planet and he said that he had while working on a couple of books about Colombia and uh, Brazil, not only not visited uh, the places, but actually not even done the research properly and had sort of relied on um, a girlfriend he'd uh, <laughs> he happened to be shacked up with who came from one of those countries to uh, fill him in on the essential details. Um, this did create a minor scandal and, and Lonely Planet did answer it and uh, it then turned out that actually um, Thomas himself was not only um, something of uh, a self-confessed faker, but a kind of faker on top of a faker in that he had invented this, uh, exaggerated this whole story in order to sell his book, the one that he had just written, which was some, was entitled All Travel, <laughs> All Travel Writers Go to Hell, um, because his, his claim in this book was that all travel writers make up a version of uh, reality but, so, or somewhere on the scale from 10% to 100%. Ah, okay. Well, look, I I must say, in the guidebooks I've written, which I have researched as assiduously as I can, I have made things up, but purely for the purposes of um, uh, detecting plagiarism. Oh, what an interesting thing! So, so things which really don't matter, such as uh, football team in a, a minor. 
town was founded in 1903 when it might have been founded in 1913. It's not actually going to make any difference <laughs> to anybody, but if somebody chooses to um, uh, replicate that, then you can think, well, hang on, um, have you actually done your research or have you just seen what other guidebooks have written? And this, uh, this started when um, I, I wrote, I think, the first independent guidebook to Cuba um, and somebody got in touch saying... Um, Oh, you do know that this uh, this other writer has has nicked all your maps, don't you? And I got hold of the book that um, he mentioned, and fortunately, because I'd actually made my maps by in those days sketching out from walking around, trudging the streets of these um, various uh, Cuban cities, and made sadly on the way some mistakes. I was able to say, "Here you are. <laughs> I, um, why did you? Uh, why have you said this street is called?" Um, let's say uh, Calle Guevara when actually it's Calle Castro and and my notes are obviously faulty and that eventually led to a sort of a legal settlement of some sort because it became clear that uh, they they had done that Um, but so uh, that's quite good because you actually made money out of your mistakes uh, yes yes which which I know that you've been doing for your most of your career (laughs) Um, thank you very much and by the way I should correct a mistake that I've just made which is that um, Mr. Constam's Constam I think probably uh, um, with K-O-H-N's um, book was actually called Do Travel Writers Go to Hell? So it wasn't ah. a statement. And uh, he, and I did, <laughs> he did, one of the things he did say in it was that um, um, uh, when he was supposedly uh, travelling South America um, and doing some of the research that he did so some of it he didn't do but when he did do it he was um, selling drugs to supplement his income and enjoying casual sex sometimes in the establishments he wrote about. He says that after having sex with a waitress on a table after hours he reviewed the restaurant with the words the table service is friendly But but, but, uh, these these days of course there is um, Quite a lot of fiction among online reviews because these Uh, are the fantastic democratisation of travel and the travel writing and the fact that anybody can post a review about any uh, tourist attraction, restaurant, hotel and so on. But unfortunately, um, it is said that the, uh, in the case of, for instance, a hotel, a new hotel, first person who writes a review is um, uh, the proprietor. Um, the second, third, fourth and fifth are members of the proprietor's family. Uh, the sixth is the proprietor's nearest rival. And so it goes like that. Um, and uh, with, with very, very little, few ways of telling the veracity of these things, it, I think there is much more faking it in the uh, online world than there ever was in print. I want to go back uh, a few hundred years. To your childhood. <laughs> and even beyond. <laughs> Um, to uh, 1700 and a bit, 17, early years of the uh, 18th century anyway, um, uh, Queen Anne, I think, might have been on the throne. Um, and uh, London society was wowed by the appearance of an extraordinary character um, who called himself George Salmanazar. Ah, good name, good which name. is a very good name. It yeah. wasn't his name, but he was introduced to London by uh, some kind of um, missionary, I think, um, who had discovered him uh, in, um, in in northern France. Uh, 
and had brought him to London, possibly thinking, I can actually make a few quid out of this extraordinary character, because this extraordinary character claimed to be uh, a native of Formosa. Ah, good. Which um, uh, Present-day Taiwan. Present-day Taiwan. I thought you'd be absolutely uh, on, on, on the button with that. Um, and, and nobody knew anybody from uh, Formosa at the time. Um, so they weren't surprised by the fact that he was... Um, um, Caucasian blonde uh, and spoke extremely good English <laughs> with a slight Dutch accent. <laughs> and uh, anyway, he um, he spun a, 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 an amazing tale of his life in uh, Formosa, uh, how he'd actually been um, helped to escape by missionaries and had then sort of come across uh, to London. And he became a, a sort of bit of a a, a celebrity. Um, going round to salons and telling his tale. Um, and then he was persuaded or possibly decided himself to write a book uh, about this, which he did. And I've got to say, it is possibly the longest title I have ever ever seen but anyway something like uh, should, should the listener go and make a cup of tea at this I, I, well two please do actually but here we go it's um an historical and geographical description of formosa an island subject to the emperor of japan giving and now here's the subtitle of it an account of the religion customs manners etc of the inhabitants Actually, I can't be bothered to go on. There's about another page of this, but it was all part of the title of this book, which was um, a very, a very, very successful piece of work. And um, what was extraordinary was it, it included examples of the Formosan language, which this guy, George Sarmanazo, I don't think we ever found out w- what his real name was, uh, had invented entirely because he was a proficient as proficient a linguist as he was a liar and had travelled quite a lot in Europe. So this, he picked up bits of uh, Hebrew, Italian, French, Latin. He spoke Latin very well, possibly Greek. And, and he, he sort of muddled this all up together and <laughs> invented this language. Well, how, that is, that is marvellous. And of course, it didn't matter in those days because nobody was ever going to go to Formosa to check. But they needed a, a bit of a Jeremy Kyle um, uh, lie detector test, didn't they? Or, or indeed a DNA test, um, as, as uh, I think the uh, he wouldn't last long in the 21st century before he was uncovered. Um, Do you think this will be another thing to be passed through at airports? Uh, yes. Travel writers come this way and go through this particular gate in which you are a uh, machine. Well, which, but, uh, but my, I've, I've had a few identities for international travel. So um, uh, in the olden days of Eurostar, and I think you might even have been there at the time, the best way to get a, um, a, a cheap one-way ticket to uh, France was to buy a nightclubbers ticket which um which allowed you to go in those days from london waterloo to paris um sometime after three o'clock on a, a saturday afternoon with the idea that you would be clubbing and then coming back the uh, the following morning well of course um if you just wanted to get to paris cheaply you could go there and still have a ticket to come back and i do believe there was a little bit of trade going on um in paris uh, where tickets were fairly freely and openly sold even though they contained a name which wasn't the same as that of the traveller. Well, I can propose a, a test, actually, which you should have undergone. And had I been there as well, I would have found extremely funny, which would have been to have danced 
um, the latest to the latest oh, yes. beats in order to prove that, that you were, were actually an authentic nightclubber. Well, look, I think we're probably getting to the end. But I would uh, like to leave uh, you all and Simon as well with what I think might be the most up-to-date version of travel phoniness, which is as follows. Apparently, if you look online at a, one of the travel influencers before your trip to Bali, you will see some wonderful pictures of the Gates of Heaven, which is one of the most popular tourist attractions there. And now thousands of tourists flock to the site every day, hoping to grab their perfect instant Instagram. <laughs> Instagram shot. Um, and then when they arrive, disappointment sets in because they've been conned. Because the picture you see on the, of the gates of heaven uh, shows a shimmering lake in front of it. And in fact, there isn't. Um, it's just a mirror and an iPhone trick. Uh, but I've had, had a look at some of these and they're absolutely astonishing and completely and utterly effective. So there you go. So you've got to be careful about the fake that you prepare yourself for otherwise you might be disappointed and we don't want that certainly no disappointment here um and uh, it does remind us all that um travel journalism is really just holding up a mirror to the world sometimes literally um next time i believe we're going to be talking about group travel um which itself uh, leads to all kinds of um interesting and possibly not always uh, desirable consequences. I can't wait to hear about uh, your experiences uh, and indeed to contribute my own. So um, until then, uh, from me, Mick Webb. And me, possibly Simon Calder. Goodbye. Goodbye. Goodbye.